Welcome to the podcast of the fabulous Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Michael Gordon, and I'm proud to serve as the 95th president of the greatest Rotary Club in the world. Our club serves our local and international community through a variety of projects, but our main focus is on youth literacy. If you're ever in town for either business or pleasure, we invite you to join us at one of our weekly lunches. More information about meeting time and location can be found at lasvegasrotary.com. Now, sit back and enjoy this week's speaker. The history of public television in the state of Nevada is exciting, if not amazing. I strongly recommend following Tom's presentation today when you are home tonight. Google KLVX, which is now branded, of course, Vegas PBS, and do some reading. You will truly be inspired. Our community PBS station will celebrate its 50th anniversary this coming March 25th. And as hard as it is to believe, next year, Tom will be one year shy of serving as general manager of Vegas PBS for half of the entire history of the station. It is also hard to believe that Channel 10 began operating from two covered, converted actually, classrooms located in the Southern Nevada Vocational Technical Center. Today, remember, two rooms? Today at 3050 East Flamingo Road, Vegas PBS sits in a 112,000 square foot facility. Through Tom's efforts, Vegas PBS is a crucial center of the Southern Nevada Homeland Security Response and Support System. Tom is a visionary. Those of you who know Tom well know that, frankly, he is a creative genius. Plain and simple, a man of passion, of values, and integrity. Please welcome former club president Tom Axtell to the podium. Well, that was an extremely generous uh, introduction, so thank you, Bob. Uh, today I'm going to talk about, I've given five speeches to this club in the 23 years I've been a member. And we talked about business strategies, we've talked about high-definition television, about how we were going to transform the delivery of our services on all the new emergent technologies. Spoken, my most recent speech to you was about the remarkable things we've done in education, particularly online, etc. But today I'm going to talk about, because of your gift, a service that almost nobody knows about, and it's a special service that focuses on our described and captioned media program, which under the leadership of Lynette has grown to do more than just serving the deaf and the blind. So, oh, that doesn't work. Thank you, Amanda. So first of all, why, because there is question about the funding for public television, why do we have public television in the United States and why is our public television unlike public television everywhere in the world? 
And if you look at the famous names, Samuel Morse, the telegraph, Alexander Graham Bell, the telephone, Marconi for the radio, and many, many creators, but we're an American, so we'll say Philo Farnsworth for electronic television. The United States is the only country in the world when these new communication technologies were evolved that they let the private sector run them. The telegraph, if you went to any other country in the world, it was run by their post office. The same thing happened when telephones came up. And the same for radio. The reason that there's a BBC, and they only had one radio station at first, was because the government ran it. And the government ran it for very high-minded purposes. They wanted to do education. They wanted to communicate the values of a culture. They wanted to maintain the values of a culture. Or for very low-minded reasons. It might be Stalin or Mao, and they wanted to use it for propaganda. But around the world, there was usually, until the 70s or so, a model where in America we had lots and lots of media, incredible creative talent. We built Hollywood into a powerhouse because we had the private sector. But we really didn't have an institution that focused on those public service entities, particularly education, that were the mainstay of educational media across the world. Uh, and that all changed. That's good. I better put on my glasses so I can see which button that is. So what's that? Who knows what that is? That was the world's first satellite. That is the Russians. That's the, the rocket that they used to launch Sputnik 1. 1957, last week, it was October 3rd or 4th, Sputnik went up in 1957. America was terrorized. We were as fearful of them as today we're a little worried about uh, Korea. And so President Eisenhower, the very next year in his federal budget, provided funds for experimental programs to deliver what he considered critical educational material. And that was math instruction, science instruction, foreign languages, and international culture. Eisenhower said we cannot be a world power if we don't understand the differences in the world. Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, he understood that. Similarly, he said we cannot be economically competitive unless, just like the Russians, were pouring lots of resources into engineering and science and math. And so he said the government will play with this new kind of funny black and white technology. We have educational television, and we will allow that to be used. And to everybody's surprise, they got wonderful results. The children who took those courses had, had, had uh, improved test scores, something that I know every principal cares deeply about. And, and so educational television became firmly enhanced. We think of these as the four founding fathers of public service media in the United States, and they all had a different set of values. Eisenhower wanted science, technology, engineering, and math, and a worldliness in America so that we would understand the world. Step back to 9-11. We did not have people who could translate the messages of the plotters, and we didn't understand foreign cultures. We didn't understand the culture of Islam, the many cultures of Islam. And you may not know this, but 
PBS had run two documentaries on Frontline talking about the threat of Osama bin Laden that no other network had. And PBS had just done the year before a six-part series on the history of Islam. And after 9-11, Vice President Cheney called the president or the vice president or the president of PBS and asked for those videos because they were the best resources that America at the time had. And when people in Congress asked for it, we gave copies to every member of Congress. What was that? Well, that is exactly what Eisenhower wanted, a worldliness, a knowledge of the different cultures so that we could truly be a world leader. Kennedy, when he found out that Boston might have a great PBS station, but there were other cities, big cities, that didn't have educational television, in 1963, funded something called the Educational Broadcast Facilities Program that said they, the government would pay 75% of the cost of building an educational television station that would carry the educational material that the, that the federal government or the local educational institutions were providing. And Kennedy also said, we, we think it should be more than just math and science. We ought to do the liberal arts. We ought to do performance. And you know, he was a, a, a president who really uh, pushed culture. Uh, LBJ signed the Public Broadcasting Act. It moved us from the word educational television to public television. And his view was that it should be lifelong education. Eisenhower was for credit. Uh, Johnson was continuing education. And so it, it wouldn't necessarily be for credit, but you would be learning about science in the world or archaeology or the other emerging things. And then Richard Nixon didn't think very much of uh, public television, uh, especially as we were carrying the Watergate hearings at night. And so he vetoed the bill. And of course, his popularity was going in the wrong direction, so he, the Congress was going to pass it, but he said, I will not pass it if the PBS network continues to be run out of Washington. I want any money in the federal appropriation to go to local stations, because I think there'll be people like Rotarians and even Kiwanians and others on those boards, and they won't be part of that left-wing East Coast establishment, and when they take that money and reinvest it in the national programming, it will have a better political balance. So if you look at these four founding fathers, they each had a set of different values, but the public television you see today reflects all of those values and all of those programming initiatives. And so, what happened in Nevada? Well, they passed the uh, facilities program in 1963. The Clark County School District went to the legislature and said, we think we should build 10 educational broadcasting stations in the state of Nevada. We'll headquarter it here in Las Vegas, and then we'll cover the whole state with educational broadcasting, just like they're doing in Arizona, just like they're doing over in Utah. And the legislators uh, in Carson City fell off their chairs laughing at the thought that this little tiny town of Las Vegas would be the headquarters of everything. Reno was big, we were small, so the legislature rejected a statewide system in 1966, the school district applied for the license to operate Channel 10. They gave a little-known fellow by the name of Kenny Gwynn the responsibility. Uh, for those of you who are not locals, that later became our governor. Uh, but, and Kenny Gwynn was responsible for writing the grant, for doing the purchasing, for arranging the facilities. 
1968, we went on the air for a whopping three hours. We had two 15-minute children's shows, which included Mr. Rogers, which in those days was only 15 minutes, Julia Child, and there was a movie from the New York, uh, one of the New York museums, an old film, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica film, and after three hours of broadcasting, they turned it off. They really stepped up in September of that year because they did three hours a day of instruction in the morning for elementary school children in foreign language and science. They then turned it off and had lunch. They then turned it, this is true, they turned it back on and did three more hours for high school kids on similar types of subject. They turned it off for two hours for dinner and then they took whatever had come in the mail, because that's how you got films in those days, whatever had come in the mail, and that was the evening program. So in September, we jumped from nine hours a day to a whopping, uh, or from three hours a day to nine. And we love to point out that Reno didn't get its TV station until 15 years after Vegas. Just a little fun for me to say. Uh, we, we switched to digital broadcasting in 2002. The federal government, uh, formalized our responsibility in emergency communications with the WARN Act, Warning Alert and Response Network Act. It provided hardening of television stations. It mandated that we carry certain kinds of messages. The PBS satellite is one of the redundant communication paths that is being used for uh, emergency messaging, supporting, no one's supposed to know this, National Guard and other kinds of communications. And then in 2009, we completed uh, our new building. So that's sort of a, a brief history. How are we doing on the visions of the leaders who founded public television? If you look at us, we have 768,000, a little more than that, people every single week who watch an average of eight programs. That, we have a huge audience. Most of you running your businesses would be glad to have that many customers walk through the door, unless you were a school principal. Uh, we have a very active website, 1.6 million visitors a month, overwhelmingly children who are going to PBS Kids. The children in our community spend almost 400,000 hours every single month on interactive games on our educational website that improve their math and literacy and other kinds of skills. We have a library that has small video clips, usually three to five minutes long, as well as curriculum materials, lesson plans, what are called black line masters. So that might be a crossword puzzle for third graders with key words. You can print that, teacher can give it to the children to reinforce the concepts. Uh, the last two years we averaged 523,000 downloads from that site. Uh, teachers are using it. You take that number, multiply by 30 kids in a class, and you realize the number of educationally and instructionally important communications that are coming from that service, which isn't television. It's part of an educational media library that we've created. Uh, we have, an, as an outreach of our daytime programming, we're in all sorts of Title I schools, ELL schools, public libraries. Last year, 160, almost 167,000 people attended literacy workshops. And this is where we help parents, whether they're uh, parents who are not proficient in English or people who really didn't have very good parenting when they were growing up, learn how to use the tools that we make available. 
whether it's our television tools, whether it's our internet educational tools, whether it's our uh, telephone apps. We have over 80 apps you can download on your phone and they are uh, age appropriate for children to learn. That's all part of our diverse technology service. 11, almost 11,000 teachers last year earned continuing education or professional development credits from our online courses. We started during the recession. We were doing so well at training teachers when the recession happened. Uh, we decided to launch a training program for adults. Last year, 126,000 adults completed a certification. So it might be a medical records technician, or a veterinary assistant, or a paralegal, or a, uh, uh, a supply chain warehouse manager. These are less than a two-year community college degree, but they give you a certificate that is accepted in all 50 states and which allow you to get a job. And as we look at a reindustrialization and economic diversification in our community, this is uh, one of our goals. Every 4.2 minutes of every day, 365, uh, 24 7, 365, someone completes one of these courses. And it has an annual $3.6 billion economic impact in terms of the earnings of those individuals. Is that what Ike? And Kennedy and the others were thinking about? Well, we think, it, we think it is. So when PBS started in 1970, started delivering programs, we started to get immediate protests. If we said we're for all of the people, what are you doing for deaf people? Turns out deaf people watch about 80% as much uh, television as uh, hearing, uh, people who have hearing. And so they were saying, it's really hard for us to do that. So PBS invented a technology called closed captioning. And it's called closed because we hide it in the signal. And you can go to your TV set and say, open it up. And all of a sudden, those captions will be displayed, just like subtitles on a foreign movie. Uh, PBS was the first network to do that. In 1993, the federal government required that ever, no TV set in America could be sold without that technology capacity. And they have since passed regulations that say that all television stations, all television programs on all networks must have closed captioning. So that is now available on all programs. Uh, uh, and it's because PBS initiated that. The next thing was, uh, what do you do for the blind? The blind, believe it or not, watch a lot of television. So imagine watching television when a lot of the things that happen on the screen, you can't figure out what's happening. So they, we created, when they invented stereo television in 1986, uh, stereo television, if, if you're a technical geek, you have one channel that's monaural, that blends all the audio, two channels that were stereo, a right channel and a left channel, and then they had a third one that they called SAP, Second Audio Program. They intended to use it for Spanish or other kinds of language. It was supposed to be a foreign language channel. PBS said, well, what if we have audio descriptions where an off-screen narrator tells a blind person what's happening on the screen? PBS invented that. About 75% of our primetime programming and 75% of our children's programming now has it. Some of you bought a set where it had been turned on, and so those voices you're hearing, it's not something wrong up here. You just have activated the SAP on your TV set. Uh, 
So now we're going to, Amanda is going to show you, we're going to do a little bit of audio description, and you'll be able to tell, I hope, the narrator's voice, and then also the voice of the audio describer who's explaining for a blind person what's happening on the screen. In a room. In a room filled with computers and glowing monitors, a man talks on the phone. What few people realize is how much energy is being consumed 24 hours a day. Seated at long tables, workers study information on giant screens. Even at 3 in the morning, 55% of the load is operating. Nothing totally shuts down. I mean, even at 3 o'clock, you have these street lights on. So that's what an audio You have factories that are working on a 24-hour period. And, and as you know, particularly in drama, uh, you can really set the tone in drama programs, that horrible murder. It's usually that knife goes plunging in and the music comes up and the poor person has no idea what's happening if there's not an audio description. So those programs are available. And now we'll try to show the closed caption. We have to have an internet link. And uh, we picked this video specifically for Lowry's because we knew it would sit well with you. Uh, I believe these are organellas in cytoplasm. And we'll have no audio. It will just pretend that, that you're deaf. Just as most organisms are composed. So, so you click it and then this is closed captioning. Early in my career, I, I, when I was working in Spokane, I had the experience of sitting at the Washington Water Power Company with lots and lots of uh, deaf people. And the issue was, how do you do closed captioning? And so, there, what is the right kind of font so it's easy to see? How big should it be? Do you want it to be obscured? If there's two people on camera, one of the recommendations was it's left-centered if a, if a person on the left is speaking, right-centered for the person on the other side. If there's an off-screen narrator, it jumps to the top. A whole series of conventions about how to do captioning were developed by PBS and distributed. And, and it was one of those, it, it was really emotional to watch those people say, here's how you can make television accessible to us. Okay, click. So, of course, we're a TV station, and we're spending a fair amount of money on this technology. And uh, then all of a sudden, in 2004, we got a call from the school district. And they said, Nevada is one of three states that doesn't have a, uh, a school for the deaf and the blind. And we've been borrowing federally funded materials for deaf and blind children from the Riverside School for the Deaf in California. Because of a budget cut, they've cut us off, and we can't get these materials. And these are materials that have closed captions, and they have audio descriptions, and our special needs children can get them. And we tried to get permission to do it, and they said their policy is they don't do it to one school district because history says school districts don't share. So it has to be some neutral party. Will you be that neutral party? And we said, well, we're in the videotape business. Okay, we'll do it. So we applied and we became the first public television station in the United States that became United States Department of Education Described and Captioned Media Center. And we then began to put Lynette to work on it. 
and say, let's go out and tell all the teachers in the schools and all the other uh, resources that we have these educational materials. So we began that. But a funny thing happened on the way to working with the deaf and the blind. We thought we were just working with the deaf and the blind. But then we found out that there are children with Down syndrome who speak with sign language. There are children with certain autisms who use sign language as their preferred or maybe their only way of communicating. And their parents want to learn sign language so they can talk to that child, because that's the only way they can talk to that child. And then we found out that with disabilities, children often have more than one. So there may be motor skill issues. There may be uh, small motor skill, large motor skill. There may be a whole variety of issues. So this deaf and blind center started to grow. Now, we don't use member donations for this because we think if we say send money and we'll buy TV shows and put them out, we can't then go and do a whole bunch of services. So this is all a separate subsidiary that is a grant-funded project. We now have about $400,000 a year that flows into this. And what do, and as you can see under Lynette's leadership, we, we used to be just doing videotapes and DVDs. We're doing 3,000 units a year. Last year, we hit 25,000 shipments of educational material that could be used for this special needs population. These are the partners that we now have. It's really quite amazing. So here's Henderson Parks and Rec. They have a special unit in the Parks and Rec Department that deals with people who need adaptive technology for physical rec recreation and, and for learning. We work with Opportunity Village. We work with the Deaf Centers of Nevada. We have a, an amazing number of clients who tell their people that we have closed captions and audio described programs but there may be other educational materials that will help their children be successful in school. This is a Braille literacy backpack. It turns out that if, if your child is uh, uh, deaf, you are more than uh, willing to uh, learn sign language, but if your child is blind, you're scared to death of Braille. So we've got one back here. Lynette developed all the curriculum for that. MGM gave us the money for it. And this helps parents figure out that they shouldn't be afraid of Braille. And we have a whole variety of, thing, of books. That, uh, that We have Braille books up here. We have some over there. You can see the kind of resources that we have. We also, and this club about ten, eight years ago gave us another $5,000 gift. So this is one of your projects. One of the things we learned is that you could have an absolutely terrific teacher who for the first time in his or her life has a blind child. And what do you do? You don't say, well, let's line up over here next to the window. That's not a very helpful command. Uh, so the teacher has to learn to speak differently. And kindergartners, first or second graders, they've been known to push kids, to make fun of kids, to trip them, to do things like that. How do you create a set of classroom norms that allow them to understand how they ought to treat a child with disabilities? And so Lynette, with a very large advisory committee, created a wonderful curriculum that includes, if you look at the materials, all the vision things. So it can talk about cataracts and other kinds of illnesses so you can infuse a behavioral lesson with science and other kinds of things that are part of the educational curriculum. We give those free to any teacher. The school district tells teachers at the beginning of the school year that if they want one of these for free, they can come to us. 
and we give it to them, and they could use it in their classroom. This is uh, uh, what used to be our, our tape library, and of course we don't have to distribute tapes anymore. They all live in a, on a computer in the sky. But these are some of the materials that we have begun to develop. And so at, based on advisors, so this, for instance, is a puzzle. This little puzzle costs 60 bucks. So if you are of medium uh, income and your child will only use it for three or four months, you really don't want to spend $60, but you can borrow it from us. And if I pick up the lion, it will make the sound of the animal. And it, we have other ones for the, the colors, the squares, the shapes. These are adaptive technology tools that educators say they need. Here's another one. So, so this is, uh, it's fairly expensive and you'd probably only use it for six or so months, but if you are having motor skill issues, in order to get to the number three in the color yellow to see that you have three yellow cats, you have to use those fine motor skills and continue to perfect them so that you can uh, open the gate and the latch and so on. Never when I entered the television business did I think I would know anything about this. But we see this as a logical extension for an unmet community need. And we have been able to raise funds so that it doesn't impact our uh, services. So what does the described and captured media service that you just donated $5,000 to? Here's examples. Nevada Early Intervention, they try to get kids before they enter the school if their physician diagnoses a learning dis difficulty of one kind or another then intervention services could begin to work with them to get them ready to do well in kindergarten. Opportunity Village now has over 270 adults working with us. School district has 30,000 special needs students and we work with all the principals and so on. And we'll, we'll try to play this video before he throws me off the stage. It says I got one minute left. Uh, My name is Erin Martin. I work at Opportunity Village Pride Program. Vegas PBS Library is a very important part of the work that we do at Opportunity Village. These devices were provided by Vegas PBS and they have been for use in the Pride program. These devices help my clients by helping them to work with their fine motor skills, dexterity, balance, focus, and helping them to maintain or gain some independence. My favorite thing about working with clients in Pride is to see the progress that they can make, to see them smiling, and to see them engaged in a meaningful way. To me, Vegas PBS means resources, opportunity, and a true community partner. So our television station has materials we've purchased for children with disabilities that make perfect sense for adults with disabilities to use. And so when the kids aren't borrowing those tools, we're able to provide them to adults and other nonprofits in the community. And we do that as an extension of our deaf and blind services with closed captioning and audio. But it's like the project that we lost control of. It's become a many-headed hydra, but it's one of the most emotionally satisfying activities we undertake. And so, I want to thank you for your support and your grant, and thank you for letting me speak on this topic today.
Tom, I, I think you know what we do, um, our soul yes. power every week. Excellent. But, but then before, before you go, I think um, our, our club mission, it's exemplified here that it's more than literacy. Literacy has so many facets to it. So thank you for your heart. Thank you for what you're doing at PBS. And thank you for being such a great leader and steward of our money. And then tonight, I will just give a little plug. Tune in if you're not volunteering to the telephone to at least see some Las Vegas Rotary on live TV. So thanks for giving us that, too. <laughs> I think he wants another photo. Oh, and Tom is around for questions if you want, want to talk to him. And Lynette. Meeting adjourned. Thank you for joining us for another wonderful meeting of the Rotary Club of Las Vegas. If you're interested in membership or want to know more about our upcoming projects and speakers, please visit lasvegasrotary.com for more information. Now go forth and make a difference. <laughs>